John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com. Promo code John Z. This is episode number 121 of the Individual One podcast. And for the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a truly conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him in both directions. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual one pod that's at individual the number one pod at the end of this episode of the podcast there'll be a major change in our election projection for the individual one podcast so stay tuned to that but first we review a lot of news some of it uh, breaking as we tape on this wednesday morning southern california united states time involving a new book by bob woodward and tapes that have come out regarding President Trump and his view of the coronavirus back in February and March. I'm going to get to that shortly. I first want to do things in chronological order because there's a similar situation that occurred in the last week with regard to Trump's alleged comments about uh, our military and the circumstances involving him not showing up for a ceremony back in 2018 in Europe to commemorate uh, uh, the, the fallen from World War. And uh, an article in The Atlantic, which skewered Trump, claiming to have four sources, although I'm not 100% convinced they were claiming to have four sources who directly heard the conversation. But the bottom line is, The Atlantic magazine reported that back in 2018, Donald Trump 
told people that he didn't want to visit uh, the, uh, the cemetery for the fallen soldiers. He called American soldiers losers and suckers. And basically anybody who went into the military uh, was uh, someone who should not be respected. That wasn't a direct quote, but that's the interpretation of what was said. Because after all, the only reason why you would go into the military is if you were a loser. Uh, and, you know, this is something that uh, Trump has implied previously, Correct. specifically with regard to John McCain. In fact, uh, he has specifically referred to John McCain at one point as a loser. Correct. Uh, even though he then, uh, would, during this particular controversy, claimed that he would never do such a thing. Uh, that's classic Trump, uh, although uh, in, slightly in his defense, I do think that he makes a, a critical, although somewhat absurd distinction between him being president and him not being president. You may recall that in 2016, 2015, actually, I think it was, during the beginning of the Republican presidential nominating process, he made some remarks very critical of John McCain and said, you know, I, I don't like my heroes to uh, to have been captured and called him a, a loser and that kind of stuff. Uh, he wasn't president then. He wasn't even the Republican presidential nominee then. And so in his mind... He probably makes a distinction, you know, now that I'm president, uh, this is when it really counts. That doesn't change the reality that uh, he did it and it was wrong and that effectively he's now lying and that it makes him very, very, very vulnerable to having stuff like this believed. And, and so that's, I think, important for the context of interpreting this Atlantic report. Now, you know, I'm straightforward and transparent about all of this. I do not like The Atlantic. Uh, the Atlantic has done me wrong on many, many occasions over the last uh, 15 years, starting with a, uh, a very infamous 23-page cover story on me by the now-deceased uh, famous author David Foster Wallace, which the, became so notorious that they actually republished it uh, like 10 or 15 years later. And it's still inaccurate. It was inaccurate at the beginning when it was published many, many years ago, and it still is. But that's not even, you know, the whole my whole story with The Atlantic. I, I have dealt with them on numerous things and have never found them to be credible or even the least bit responsible. So I have a very dim view of The Atlantic. Now, the media elite still likes The Atlantic because, uh, you know, they used to have a good reputation. I don't think that reputation is deserved anymore. And when this first this story first came out, my blink gut reaction is that there's a problem with the story. One, because there's no on the record sources, which used to matter and still should matter, especially if you're going to quote the president of the United States in something so inflammatory as him uh, disparaging uh, fallen American soldiers. Uh, there ought to be somebody willing to go on the record it's that says that they heard that specific quote. That's not the case here. So journalistically, that's a big problem. But I also am someone, and I've had pretty darn good success doing it this way. One of the ways, one of the primary ways that I interpret the validity of a media story is how the story evolved and whether or not it makes sense from a purely media perspective. Now, let's pretend this happened. This is the other thing I always do. I would say, okay, let's pretend Trump actually did this, and he did so apparently uh, within earshot or maybe even directly to several top uh, officials within his administration. All right. Let's pretend that happened for the sake of argument. Had that happened, I find it impossible to believe. Well, not impossible. It's highly improbable to believe 
that one, it would take two plus years for this to come out publicly. That would be a very, very difficult thing to keep from going public. That's number one. So why the delay if that many people were aware of this? Number two, when it became public, it would not become public in an article in The Atlantic. All right. It would be part of somebody's book or it would have been given to The New York Times, The Washington Post or maybe The Wall Street Journal. That's the way this game works. Correct. That kind of a story would not, two years plus later, be given to the Atlantic unless there was some extraordinary circumstances. I don't see any extraordinary circumstances here. So right off the bat, I have questions. Now, I think part of, as I've already alluded to, I think part of the problem for Trump here, and he deserves this, See, this, this is where he gets hoisted on his own petard. And, he, and, he, and you know, even though it's sometimes unjust, he effectively gets what he deserves. You know, karma is a bitch. When you start, you know, disparaging John McCain at the beginning of your presidential campaign, you lose all benefit of the doubt. Right. That's logical. But, you know, uh, let's say that O.J. Simpson got remarried and uh, his new wife ended up uh, dead uh, via a knife attack, right? <laughs> I think most people would understandably go, wow, OJ killed somebody again. But it would still, at least to me, require evidence. There would still have to be, you have to evaluate that episode on its own, not because you've already presuming that he's capable of this and therefore it must be true, right? If you're trying to be fair about this, which I am always exceedingly fair, even to Donald Trump, whom I hate and whom every single day I wish more and more had never been elected president of the United States, because I believe much of what we're involved with here is as a result, as a backlash, uh, the left going absolutely bananas in reaction to his election and his presidency. So back to the whether or not this actually happened or not. I found the story to be uh, not up to journalistic standards because there are no direct sources saying, I heard this quote from the president. Nobody does that. And if you read the article really carefully, which, of course, nobody does, I'm not even convinced that the so-called four sources of the story are sources that directly heard the quote. They were sources regarding whether or not his trip to the cemetery had been canceled because of weather or because he didn't want his hair to get wet. Those are different things. And it's interesting to note that even John Bolton's book, and obviously Bolton is very anti-Trump at this point, John Bolton's book backs up Trump's story here. That this had nothing to do with his hair, not wanting, him not wanting to get his hair wet, that there was a security problem with regard to getting him there in the bad weather. Now, I have to take that uh, at face value. I don't know because I wasn't there. I'm not an expert in those things, whether or not there really was a logistical safety issue or not. But when John Bolton's book backs that up, that to me at least has some credibility. Now, then ensuing after this, there were all sorts of stories saying that this story had in the Atlantic had been debunked, that it had been confirmed. Even Fox News Channel had one of their primary reporters supposedly uh, confirm the story, and I read their story, and it did not confirm the story. It did not do that. It got reported that way, and Trump went bananas over it, and I kind of understand why he did, because 
you know, headlines are everything in this short attention span universe we're living in, and especially with the media morons, the way that they work. And so if a Fox News Channel reporter uh, puts something out there, even on Twitter, which is basically a brain fart, uh, that they can confirm the Atlantic story, then that gets shared thousands and thousands of times, and that becomes the narrative. Fox News Channel confirmed the story. No, they did not. First of all, they did not find anybody who actually witnessed Trump saying that. They didn't find anybody, not on the record. And number two, the people that they did found literally said, this is something the president would say, would say, as in this is consistent with his M.O. Okay, interesting, but not confirmation. What they should have been saying, this is something that the president did say, and I heard him say it. That would be confirmation. But that's not what Fox News Channel did. And I'm sorry. I realize, you know, uh, people want me to hate uh, Donald Trump at all times and uh, criticize him for everything. All I care about here is the truth. Did the president say it or not? I don't know. No one can know for sure. But I do not believe that the Atlantic story is up to the standards that should be required of such an incendiary allegation against the president of the United States. Now, do I believe that Donald Trump has as much respect for the military as he claims? Of course not. I think that that probably is part of of Trump's mindset with regard to the military, which, by the way, is why this Atlantic story was so easily believed because it fit a, a preconceived notion and a narrative about Trump that, again, is largely for because of his own doing. He deserves blame for that. This is, you know, you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. When you say John McCain is a loser and, you know, you don't, you don't like him because he got captured and, and you disparage him on multiple occasions, sorry, you don't get any benefit of the doubt when it comes to a story like this. Correct. So basically everybody's wrong. That's what the bottom line here is. I mean, that, that, that's where we are in, in this country right now. We're better than that. No, no, we're not. No, our president is, is not to be trusted and probably doesn't have a lot of respect for the military because he can't understand the concept of self-sacrifice. Although I will say that one of the quotes in The Atlantic that obviously uh, was potentially taken out of context was where they quote Trump as saying, why do these people do this? There's nothing in it for them. Well, if... If another president had said that, if George W. Bush had said that, or even Barack Obama had said that, it would be immediately perceived as, well, he's talking about their great sacrifice, with this remarkable sacrifice that they're willing to, to provide to their country. They're volunteering and, and, and risking their own lives for very little in return because they believe in the country. That's, that's the way you could interpret that if you wanted to. But, of course, when it's Trump, you can't do that because, obviously, uh, everyone knows he's an asshole and, and an idiot, and therefore everything should be perceived through that prism. Well, that's dangerous because sometimes you, you believe things that aren't true. So I don't believe that the, the Atlantic story uh, should have been published the way that it did. It may or may not be true. I don't know. As far as Trump's response, uh, you know, people, again, he was in an impossible situation because of his own doing, because everyone presumes he's guilty in this realm off, off the bat. Uh, but there are some people who thought that his objection to this story was actually too passionate and in the realm of dust thou protest too much. But here's what uh, Trump had to say in response to the Atlantic story. 
an even worse story, an even worse story, calling certain names to our fallen heroes. It's a disgrace that a magazine is able to write it. And anybody that, if, if, the, if they really exist, if people really exist that would have said that, they're lowlifes and they're liars. And I would be willing to swear on anything that I never said that about our fallen heroes. There is nobody that respects them more. So I just think it's a horrible, horrible thing. We made a great evening into, frankly, a very sad evening when I see a statement like that. No animal, nobody, what animal would say such a thing? And especially since I've done more, I think, than almost anybody to help our military. All right. So the thing that struck me there was, one, that's about as strong as Trump ever gets when it comes to uh, fighting back against an allegation. Correct. Uh, But he's relying on the idea that he would swear on anything (laughs) that that didn't happen. Well, here's the problem. Is, is that when you're a pathological liar, then uh, no one is going to believe you when you swear on anything. Correct. Uh, when you, uh, It's obvious you don't believe in religion, so you can't swear on the Bible. Uh, uh, and so uh, and, and when you don't believe in truth and when you d- decide to lie uh, whenever it suits you, then when it really comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road, you don't have the credibility to fall back on, which is really the essence of the biggest problem of the entire Trump presidency. Correct. And we've seen it in the last six months with regard to the coronavirus, which is why I was always most terrified of what would happen if Donald Trump was president in a real crisis because he has no credibility and your credibility especially in a crisis when you're president is all that you have and so here he is asking people to believe him because you know uh, he would swear on anything and most people just aren't going to do that now what impact does this have probably not very much because it's already baked into the cake His fans already have been trained not to believe anything in the news media, especially when there are no direct sources. And, uh, you know, those that wanted to believe it were never going to be people who would vote for Donald Trump to begin with. So I don't see this as a particularly significant story other than it just shows how incredibly broken everything is. Our presidency is broken because our president has no credibility, even when he says, I'll swear on anything. It's not going to change anybody's mind. And our media is totally broken in that they are reporting things that are of really grave significance in theory that aren't substantiated. Doesn't mean they aren't true. Just means they don't reach the threshold or pass journalistic muster, especially a couple of months out from an election where the standards ought to be really, really high if you're if you give a damn about truth or fairness. Unfortunately, Nobody seems to care about uh, truth or fairness at all, especially in the news media. Now, this is not the only front on which Trump is uh, fighting against the media. He's now got a new explosion just this morning with tapes that have been released in conjunction with Bob Woodward's new book called Rage. Now, (laughs) this is, to me, more interesting than the Atlantic situation. One, because I think it's, uh, well, one, because there's tapes. Uh, and two, because of uh, the, the fact that Trump even participated in this book to begin with. 
I do not understand why Donald Trump, other than the fact that he's a moron, would decide, you know what, even after Bob Woodward wrote one book at the beginning of my administration that was highly critical of me and and my presidency, I'm going to provide him not just with interviews directly, one-on-one, but uh, on tape. I mean, why, why, in, why in the world would you do that? I, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's, in, it's an indication that Trump really is not very bright in many ways. And he's also very naive. And my guess is that what happened is that because Woodward from, you know, the, the Nixon days, Woodward and Bernstein, he's very still very famous journalist in this country. Within the media circles, he has enormous cachet, even though it's not really deserved, because I think Bob Woodward has made a lot of mistakes over his career. And I think he's been living on the Nixon thing, uh, you know, for almost 40 years now and or more than 40 years now. And so uh, he uh, I, I, I'm not a huge Bob Woodward fan. Uh, and, I, and I think this happens whenever a, a journalist becomes a massive celebrity. They start to believe their own bullshit. They start to cut corners. The expectations become higher. They need to continually come up with the, the big bombshell to, to uh, be able to continue to forward this narrative that there's somehow all this great th- these great things that everyone's saying about them. And that's very dangerous as a journalist, especially when you're in a bubble, when you're in a celebrity bubble. That's also uh, against what you need to be a good journalist. You need to be able to live a real life to be a good journalist. And Bob Woodward has not lived a real life outside of the bubble in <laughs> In half a century. So so the reality is that I'm not a huge Woodward fan, but he does have tapes and Trump handed him a weapon. And, you know, my guess is, assuming that Trump knew and ex- accepted that these were being taped, I'm assuming he must have. Uh, the story just broke, so I don't know 100 percent for sure. But uh, he must have thought, well, it's better that I'm on tape and that way it's more difficult for them to take me out of context. Well, that's not the way this works anymore. Because no one's going to listen to hours of tape. They're not going to release hours of tape. They're just going to take snippets. So today, these two snippets came out uh, of tapes that Bob Woodward recorded for his book, Rage, in which he's talking with Donald Trump about the coronavirus. And they have uh, really exploded on Twitter. Uh, Now, that doesn't make it true because Twitter often falls for things that uh, fit their preconceived notions and make them feel better, especially, uh, you know, woke Twitter. They, you know, anything that, that makes Trump look bad immediately is accepted as 100 percent true. But the perception of these clips is that this is the smoking gun, the smoking gun that Donald Trump knew how bad the coronavirus was going to be. And he purposely concealed those details from the American public and that uh, that this is a scandal and this is uh, proof that uh, Trump wanted Americans to die and uh, and that this is yet another reason why uh, he should not be reelected. Now, again, I, I, I've said this a hundred times. I, I wish he was not president. I've always feared what would happen in the crisis. He blew this many different ways, but different ways than the media would like you to believe that he blew the coronavirus reaction. And he's still blowing it to this day, I think, in detriment to his own reelection efforts. Uh, But my uh, objective here is to figure out what the truth is and to have some level of fairness in evaluating reality. 
And it is my basic belief that what we're seeing so far in the reaction of these clips is at the very least overblown, if not completely unfair. I'm going to play the two clips for you. The first one is in early February. Okay, now this one is being used as proof that Trump knew how bad the coronavirus was going to be, even at a time when he was still largely downplaying it. All right. And I can understand why people's initial reaction to this is the way that it is. But I'm going to play it for you. And I think there's a part of it that's being misinterpreted, which is key. And it's it's in reference to when Trump is talking about how deadly he believes or has been told to believe, because I'm sure he didn't do the research on his own. This is probably from Fauci and, and those people like him. How deadly the coronavirus is in comparison to the flu. And he references 5%. So keep an ear out for that. But this is the first of the two clips that have been getting so much play today, at least on Twitter and on CNN, which broke the story uh, regarding these tapes that Bob Woodward recorded in interviews with President Trump for his book, Raged. And this one is from February of this year. So what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the, uh, the virus. And I think he's going to have it in good shape. But, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's, uh, it, goes, it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air... You just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more for deadly. This is five per... You know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. All right. Now, that last part is important because what he's saying there is that uh, he's referencing the 5% number. Now, the 5% number is what the original alarmist projections were all based on. That's 5% of people who are positive cases. There was a perception back then that if you tested positive for coronavirus, that there was a 5% chance that you were going to die. That was the perception out there. In fact, that was the perception uh, via our so-called experts for quite a long time. Well, that number has turned out to be false. Now, it's taken a long time for the numbers to to, uh, you know, finally have enough data to where we know what that number is. But right now, within recent months, even among confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States, that number is at most two percent, at most two percent within the last several months when we had full on testing. And part of the problem of the beginning, and, and Trump deserves some blame for this, is that we did not have nearly enough testing. And as I've said to you, and I think uh, properly so, and, I, and, and I've been correct in where this meant that the data was heading, that the, the definition of a coronavirus case has dramatically changed 
in six months. So back at the beginning, there was this fear that, oh, my gosh, 5% of those who test positive for this are going to die. That's not reality. That turned out to be false. Okay, so this is important. This, is to me, is very important. So what Trump's critics are upset about is that he didn't tell America how serious he thought it was back in February. In fact, even after this interview, he is still on Twitter and elsewhere downplaying the significance of the coronavirus, that he didn't tell the American people information that turned out to be false. All I know is what's on the Internet. So, so hold on a second. So, so he's being ripped to shreds because he did not immediately go out to the American public and say, oh, my God, if you get tested positive for this, there's a 5% chance you're going to die. He didn't do that. And guess what? It wasn't true. It wasn't close to true. And as far as the relationship between a normal flu and what Trump is talking about there is, you know, who would have thought we lost 25 to 30,000, which, by the way, is an underestimation of the normal uh, flu deaths in a particular year in the United States. Of course, we've never counted deaths for any virus the way that we're counting uh, deaths in this particular situation. And so the numbers are exceedingly difficult to interpret. But he's talking there as somebody who clearly is just learning about this whole thing based on incredibly bad information, bad data at the very beginning of, of this pandemic. This is, again, early February. And he has been told that 5% of people who get this are going to die. We don't know, by the way, what his perception, and this is another important part of this, what is his perception of how many people are going to get this? See, if 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 his perception at the time was half of America is going to get this and 5% of those people are going to die, then, okay, holy crap, it's absurd that he was uh, still downplaying the coronavirus at that time, regardless of whether or not the information he was being told was true or not. However, it's possible, it's possible because we've got to remember, in February, the numbers uh, in Asia were not nearly that bad as far as the number of people who were getting this. So he may have thought that this was a situation that not that many people were going to get it still, and that that 5% number, therefore, would not result in you know millions of deaths. Now, at some point... And we don't, I don't know yet, and I, I don't think anyone does, does yet, Trump becomes convinced that over 2 million Americans are going to die. And this becomes, in my view, his biggest mistake of all this, a mistake that he's unwilling to admit to because it would require him to acknowledge that he was duped by Dr. Fauci and other people. But uh, he is completely invested in that narrative, that he saved 2 million lives. And I think it's dramatically curtailing his ability to win re-election for better or for worse. But so that's the first clip that's being uh, played uh, all over the Internet and on CNN. And that's supposed to be, aha, the smoking gun that Trump didn't tell us the truth. Again, a truth that was not true, <laughs> a truth that was false. Well, what's the explanation for that if you're, if you're from Trump's perspective? Well, there's a second clip, and the second clip uh, it, it provides a, an interesting explanation. Now, this occurs 
in middle of March. So now the shutdown has begun. Now we have more information. And Woodward is asking about why uh, Trump had previously downplayed this. Uh, and Trump is, for him, remarkably upfront about it and essentially admits that uh, he did so uh, for a specific reason. And here's what that sounded like. Inexplicable and unexplainable. Well, I did not really, to be honest with you, sure, I, want you to I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. I always wanted to play it down because I didn't want to create a panic. Now, <clears throat> that uh, is an interesting explanation uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because inherently there's some credibility to that, right? If you if you believe that the president uh, is a person who's who's uh, you know remotely human and is remotely concerned about what's best for the country and for the world. Uh, which sometimes I, I understand with Trump as a stretch. But if you just give him any benefit of that at all, that is an explanation that at least deserves some semblance of credibility. But what I found to be particularly interesting about that is, you know what that sounds like? That sounds an awful lot like the Fauci mask explanation, doesn't it? Isn't that exactly the same explanation that Dr. Fauci has given for him being against mask use in March of this year, right at the same critical time period when the media is telling us now, oh my gosh, they all knew and they didn't do what, you know, Trump didn't do what it, it was required to save us and thousands and thousands of people who died didn't need to die. Well, in early March, Dr. Fauci told us, don't wear masks. He mocked masks uh, and, and said that they would not be effective in this particular situation. We should not all be wearing masks. And then, of course, several months later, he completely changed, did a 180, except when it came to his own mask usage at a baseball game. Correct. Uh, but I digress. The reality is that Fauci's cover story for that is I didn't want to cause a run on masks and I didn't want to cause a panic. Not that I was wrong, because after all, I'm a religious leader. I'm like a cardinal in the Catholic Church or something, or maybe the Pope. Uh, you know, Dr. Dr. Fraudchi is viewing himself that way, and he's being treated that way. And, you know, if you're the Pope, you speak infallibly. So you inherently can't be wrong. There must be a reason why what you said wasn't true or why you changed your mind. Well, the reason why Fauci changed his mind is because he didn't want to be left behind when this became super popular. And it was a symbol, in my view, of uh, being anti-Trump and, and virtue signaling uh, that you're so much against the virus that you're willing to use a mask at all times, even when not necessary. So it is fascinating to me and, and very, I think, telling that the very same people who are outraged about the idea that Trump would not provide his full view of the virus back in February of March because he was afraid of creating a panic are the same people who are gullible enough, naive enough to completely buy this bullshit explanation that Fauci has thrown out there that, yeah, back in March, I was just lying because I didn't want to cause a panic. I mean, that's so it's the same basic thing, only I would suggest that Trump's argument is actually a little bit stronger than Fauci's, partially because the knowledge we had about masks and viruses was a hell of a lot more 
credible and substantive and well-researched than the death rate of the coronavirus, which turned out to be completely and totally wrong. Correct. So, look, I get why uh, these clips are salacious and why people are eating them up because it substantiates what they already want to believe about Trump and the virus. But I got to say, this seems unfair to me. I hate unfairness. I hate Donald Trump, but I hate unfairness even more. I hate bad media coverage even more. And I, I do not believe that this is a fair standard to be used. Now, again, I have questions, especially about you know, Trump's downplaying this well after he made that statement. I want to know what those statements were based on, how many people he thought were going to get this, all of that. But uh, by and large, I think that uh, this is being overblown and being overblown from an overtly political perspective. And, you know, even the, the CNN article that broke the story was it looked like it was written by the Democratic National Committee. I mean, it was that biased. It was absurd. It was buying into all sorts of unproven uh, premises. Like, for instance, that if we hadn't, if we had shut down harder and sooner when Trump thought that the virus was going to be this bad and, you know, it was quote unquote deadly stuff, that we would have saved all these lives. Well, hold on a second. The, the, the Democratic leadership, including governors, were not in favor of that in February. There were plenty of statements in February from Democratic leaders who were downplaying the virus, including in New York, where, where, where this ended up being by far the biggest disaster. So, and, you know, and the idea that somehow Trump is held responsible for inaccurate perceptions of the virus when Dr. Fauci has been all over the map in both directions and he's supposed to be the world's foremost expert, it's just absurd. It, it, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. It really is. It's just flat out ridiculous. And, uh, and it's not fair. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I hate that this is what's going to bring down Trump. <laughs> I wish Trump had been brought down because he is a corrupt, lying con man who is unfit for the job, not because of a bullshit uh, narrative that was created in an obvious effort to destroy him that is blaming him for something that he's not responsible for, uh, where the evidence that uh, he did anything really all that wrong is rather minute. Uh, in my opinion, uh, and really had he had very little control over this. I just don't buy the presumption that the president of the United States had any major control over what impact the coronavirus was going to have in the United States. I don't buy it. Now, at the beginning, I thought that was plausible, but now we have enough information because every country has dealt with this in largely the same way. And, and the idea that some, well, some have done so much better. You know why they did so much better? Uh, because, one, it's not over there yet because they locked down so ridiculously hard that all they did was delay the inevitable. And so some of these countries that, you know, can claim, well, they had fewer deaths and fewer cases. Great. Guess what? It's still going to hit them eventually. And we're seeing that with second waves in numerous countries, especially in Europe and some U.S. states. I mean, some U.S. states that got praised like Hawaii. Hawaii is a great example. It's obviously an island. They shut down hard. They wore masks like crazy. They had hardly any virus. And then all of a sudden, the virus did what the virus is going to do, regardless of what the government does. The government has only the ability to potentially delay this. They do not have the ability to stop it, end it, 
what have you, because it's it's always going to hit eventually. Even if a miracle happens and the vaccine is fantastic, which, by the way, the vaccines, one of the major vaccines out of Oxford has been put on pause now because of potential uh, problems with regard to uh, creating uh, other illnesses. We don't know how serious that is. Uh, The vaccine makers have all made a pledge to not release a vaccine until it's uh, 100% uh, provably safe, which, of course, I, I perceived as a cynic as they're basically making a pledge to make sure that it's not released before the election. Correct. Uh, and it's, 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 it's a damn shame that even a frickin' vaccine has become so politicized. Trump is you know, basically implying that it might come out before the election. And now, of course, like everything else, the anti-Midas effect, everyone in the medical community is putting the brakes on it, uh, whether because they directly don't want to help Trump or because they don't want to see it be seen as, as political. So now there seemingly is going to be a pause on vaccines. We're not going to have a vaccine before the election. Whether that's political or not, I don't know. But that, that's going to be the perception, and that's pathetic. That is pathetic that even a vaccine for this alleged unprecedented modern times pandemic is going to be seen 100 percent through political lens as to whether or not it comes out before the election or after the election and whether or not it helps Trump or doesn't help Trump. I mean, that's just it's just sad. We're better than that. No, we're not. This is who we are now. Even a frickin vaccine is basically nothing more than a political football. And it's pathetic. It is absolutely pathetic. And as far as the, the larger view of the virus is concerned, the hypocrisy is becoming more and more evident everywhere. Obviously, in the last week, a lot of coverage in this country over Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, uh, being caught in a hair salon, one, getting her hair done when she shouldn't have been allowed to, and two, walking around indoors without a mask. Oh, my gosh. You cannot be serious. Uh, Now, of course, her explanation was really rich. So she gets caught red-handed. And what's her explanation? Not, I'm sorry I have sinned against the religion of COVID. Not, you know, I I beg for forgiveness. Let me do my act of contrition. Because that's what this is now. COVID is a religion. Uh, But none of that. No, no, no. No, the reaction was... (laughs) was basically uh, the old uh, mayor of D.C., the bitch set me up. That's a <laughs> Mary and Barry. I mean, for Americans might remember, of a certain age might remember that famous episode. Nancy Pelosi's explanation was literally, I was set up. It's just flat out ridiculous. I was set up? You were set up to break the rules and get your hair done in the salon that's closed and then not wear a mask indoors, even when the people around you were. The reality is these people don't really believe in the mask. They don't really believe in the mask. And the data doesn't support the mask. And they don't believe that the rules are legitimate. They're not for them. Those are for the great unwashed. Those are for the people who uh, are. we just need to create fear so we can continue this narrative, so we can continue to control lives, we can continue to lock down at least until the election, at least until Joe Biden is president. And this is not a conspiracy. This is just the way these people think. And it, it exposes the absurdity of the whole thing. The, the, the people that really, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is an old woman. She, she, she's you know, close to the, to the most vulnerable demographic here. She should be scared out of her mind if this was all real. But she knows it's not all real. This is, this is politics. 
She knows that this is a game. This is a religion. And she got caught sinning. That's what happened here. And Trump has tried to make an issue out of it. But I, I frankly think Trump is mishandling all sorts of opportunities that the left is giving him with regard uh, to the virus. Uh, as I have told you, the virus is fading in most of America. Now, today is probably going to be a bad data day because we're coming off of a, a long uh, holiday weekend for Labor Day. But the seven-day average for our deaths is now below 800, just as I predicted on Twitter that it would be about uh, seven or about six, six days ago I did that, and I was dead on in that prediction. It's well below 800. It will be a bad day today, but the seven-day average, which is all that I really care about, is continuing to trend down. I believe it will continue to go down, but unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be having much of any real impact on anybody. It's not getting any real media coverage. These projections are going to be uh, of 417,000 American deaths by the end of the year are going to be catastrophically wrong, uh, and no one will care. It's as if the data has no impact on reality anymore. Everyone has just accepted the narrative that they want. They've, they've not, you know, cut us off at the knees. They have the ability to, to boss us around and control our lives, and they're not going to give that power up unless they're forced to, and I don't see how they're going to be forced to. And, uh, you know, just so many absurd things on a daily basis. It's really being, becoming very difficult to, uh, to even accept the stupidity that we're seeing. The stupidity is everywhere. In, all in a situation where I, I, I really still believe that by the end of October, we're going to see very small numbers of deaths, even by our absurd definition in the United States of America. Now, will there be an, another wave in the winter when the flu comes around? I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm just telling you that in the next several weeks, this number is going to continue to go down. And I believe that the formula that I've come up with for figuring out exactly how many deaths are going to be reported on a particular day is, is pretty darn accurate. You just go back 15 days, take the seven-day average of cases, and you take 2% of that, and that's about the most you're going to get in any particular day, and it's going to be less on Sundays and Mondays. That formula has, has been not perfect, but darn near perfect, and that's why I projected that we were going to have less than 800 deaths per day uh, during this particular week. Again, it'll go up today on Wednesday, but I think uh, in the next week or so it'll continue to trend downward, but no one seems to care. Bizarrely, you know, there are other places that we used to mock for being cowardly that seem to get it more than we do. France, of all places, France is going to have the French Open in a couple of weeks where they're planning to have 5,000 spectators at their tennis matches. So riddle me this. The French, which we used to think of as wussies, they can have 5,000 people in a tennis match, but New York City having the U.S. Open, New York City, which used to be, you know, the, the epicenter of machismo and, and courage after 9-11 and all that. <laughs> no spectators for a tennis match outside? Really? Really? What do you say about that, John McEnroe? You cannot be serious! I mean, that's how, that's how upside down the world is now. How, how pathetic we have become. What cowards we have become. And it's, seeing, it's being seen in every walk of life. I've talked a lot about schools. I think Trump is really blowing it on schools. I, I, uh, two months ago, I did a podcast saying that, you know, this has got to be his last issue. He should put everything down on schools opening. He did not do so. He, he came out in favor. 
but he didn't do anything about it. He hasn't been removing uh, federal funding for schools that aren't opening. He's, he's really stopped talking about it quite a bit. And uh, he has not hung this issue around the necks of Joe Biden and the Democrats like he should. And in my particular situation, I have a very strange circumstance. My eight-year-old daughter who's been on this podcast before, she's in second grade. Her name is Grace. And she is in public school. But get this. This is her situation. She's one of those that is allowed to go on her campus because we applied and got accepted. Apparently not that many people wanted to do this, which was depressing. Uh, But she goes on her campus to do her online learning. It's basically like a day camp where she goes on to her campus in a mask, which is stupid, and she's in a classroom with about eight or nine, ten other kids. They're, of course, socially distant. And she gets on her computer to do online, quote-unquote, learning with her teacher who's in another room on the same freaking campus. And there are other students that are doing the same thing that are in her class that aren't allowed to intermingle even though at least one of them is in the same classroom with her. It's insanity. But bizarrely, she likes it, (laughs) at least so far. I don't know how long that's going to last. I think she might think she's special because she's one of the few that's actually on campus and the rest of the classroom is is on, you know, Zoom from their house. Uh, But that could change, you know, in a a heartbeat. But here's what's really interesting and and a little ironic since she kind of likes the current situation A couple of weeks ago, we got asked to do a a videotape for a feature that the CBS National Morning Show was doing on kids asking questions about the opening of school. And the reason why we got asked to do this is because I am a plaintiff in a lawsuit against the governor here in California, Gavin Newsom, to try to allow counties to have the right to open schools which unfortunately is not going anywhere because the judges in this in this uh, state are all have their heads up their asses and they're not they're afraid to do anything that would uh, go against the king uh, Gavin Newsom. Anyway, I taped a uh, about a 35 second clip with my daughter and I didn't really think very much of it. In fact, I I wasn't even really that pleased <laughs> with it. Uh, but other people were and we sent it to CBS and she was part of a feature that they did last Friday morning on kids going back to school. Now, what's really interesting is not only was she fe- was she in the feature, she was actually the promotion for the feature. In other words, they used her clip twice. So they edited down what we sent them into a smaller clip, and they put some pictures of her and our family uh, on to cover it up uh, you know, because of edits. And so she was not just in the actual segment. She was in the promo. And the promo for the segment was actually better than the segment itself because the anchorman is clearly amused by my daughter's phrasing of her questions about school opening. And here's what it sounded like on the CBS National Morning Show on Friday. More news ahead. Children heading back to school are filled with questions about changes during the pandemic. Why can't we go and see our friends? Why can't we go to school? Why do we have to do this online learning stuff? And how is this going to help us? Why, why, why? Coming up, we continue our School Matters series with answers from students, for students from psychologist Lisa Demore. You're watching CBS This Morning. Why, why, why? (laughs) 
So they got a kick out of uh, our daughter, Grace. Grace also got a kick out of it, but not as big. A, it's just so strange what, how kids perceive these things. It was neat for her to for to her to see herself on television because we taped it. But she was actually way more excited that her picture was in our local uh, uh, mini newspaper that goes to like a couple thousand people because of school openings. They had asked for people to, uh, to send their, their pictures of the first day of school, and Grace was one of those picked for that. So that was a much bigger deal. I, I spent an enormous amount of time and effort making that happen where millions of people were going to see her on television. She was more excited about our rinky-dink tiny little local newspaper, but that's the way uh, life tends to work. I, I hope that she'll continue to like the, the school situation, but it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. And the, and the teachers know it, or not, not the teachers know it because the teachers union is in the tank, but the principal knows it, the superintendent knows it, uh, everyone knows it, but we have to pretend. And part of the pretend is a reaction to Trump. Because Trump was in favor of school openings, now liberals have to be against it. Because that's the way this works. It's just flat out ridiculous. In this absurd world in which we now live. We're better than that. No, we're not. It's just pathetic. It's And kids are suffering for it, and kids will continue to suffer for it. Here in the Los Angeles area, last night it was announced that there will be no Halloween. We're 53 days out, 52 now, 52 days out from Halloween. And Los Angeles County, the largest county in the state of California, the largest state in America, has already declared that Halloween is banned. Halloween is banned. Now, think about how absurd that is off the top. First of all, it's 52 days out in a situation where we have no idea for sure how bad the virus is going to be on October 31st. That's number one. Number two, where the fuck, where the fuck does the government get off banning something that they're not responsible for. They have nothing to do with it. They have nothing. It's not a, a sanctioned state event going door to door, trick or treating for candy in a costume. That's that, the government has no fucking right to be banning that. And yet they're doing so even as the virus fades, even here in California, Los Angeles County yesterday had an incredibly low even though it was a you know a weird day because of the the holiday coming off the holiday, but incredibly low number of new cases and deaths, and they're gonna ban Halloween, and and not just any Halloween by the way. This is gonna be you know one of the very few Halloweens, probably the only Halloween that most kids will would have ever experienced on a Saturday, which is a big deal because it's on a Saturday. It's the it's the one day of the week where you don't have school the next week and you don't have school that day. So the next, next day, you don't have school the next day. You, don't have, you didn't have school that day. So, you know, it's a huge deal to have it on a Saturday. And they're going to take trick-or-treating away from kids. Now, uh, you know, I tweeted about this last night, and there seemed to be some blowback. I, you know, if, if there is not some rebellion against this, some civil disobedience against this, and I'm sure this will spread probably to our county because our county does whatever L.A. County does. We're just north of L.A. County. Uh, if there's not some civil disobedience against this, then we are completely done. Then we are, if there's, there, there's got to be some rebellion, if only from a symbolic standpoint. Now, we saw it on the 4th of July. On the 4th of July, I've never seen so many fireworks that were allegedly illegally created. And so if the, fire, if the 4th of July is any indication, then there still will be a Halloween. It's, it, unfortunately, the problem becomes... There's so many people that are invested in the virus and they're going to do whatever the government tells them. And, of course, the media will immediately go fall right in line. 
oh, we can't do Halloween. And so, therefore, the political cover for anyone that wants to do Halloween is taken away. And it will be exceedingly difficult to pull that off in this PC world. So there's there's not going to be a real Halloween. Hopefully there will be a semblance of Halloween. But that's where we are now. Governments are banning Halloween. Halloween, 52 days in advance in a situation where the virus is fading and trick-or-treating would be exceedingly obviously safe in every possible way. We have lost our fucking minds. You cannot be serious! A couple other things before uh, I get to our our dramatically changed projections for the election. Uh, Trump decided that he was going to give the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Lou Holtz, former Notre Dame football coach, coached a lot of different colleges, uh, well-known as an ESPN commentator. Now, there's a couple different uh, issues here. Uh, one is that, unfortunately, this is consistent with the way Trump runs his whole presidency. It's about what's good for him and what's good for his friends. And he has totally bastardized the formerly prestigious Presidential Medal of Freedom by giving it to all sorts of people whose uh, qualifications are basically they're famous and they're his buddies. That's really all it is. Rush Limbaugh is probably the best or worst example. He gave it to Tiger Woods, which, you know, I used to I am a big Tiger fan, used to be a massive Tiger fan. Then the scandal happened. But I, you know, I, I love the fact that he's come back. It's a great story. I, I frankly think he's too young to be given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I also think it's a problem that they have a conflict of interest because they have a, a common business interest together, not just in the golf industry. I mean, that alone would be a conflict of interest in a perfect world. Uh, but I disagreed and, in fact, even wrote about how it was wrong for Trump to give uh, Tiger Woods the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But Lou Holtz is a whole nother level of bullshit. Uh, and, and, you know, this didn't begin with Trump. He just exaggerated it. Unfortunately, uh, you know, Barack Obama absolutely, uh, you know, bastardized the award, gave it to uh, famous friends and people who, uh, with whom he had uh, at least some semblance of a conflict. But Trump has, has taken that precedent, and he has run with it to an absurd degree. And this would kind of fit under the six degrees of separation of John Ziegler, but I, I happen to have dealt with Lou Holtz uh, in a fairly significant way on a couple of different occasions, and I believe him to be a bad person. Uh, and I was a huge Notre Dame fan at the time and as a kid, uh, and he was, Notre, he was the head coach at Notre Dame at the time, uh, he was. He had agreed uh, in person uh, to write the forward for my f- first book, which was about spending a year with a high school football team in Ohio from an area where Lou Holtz had grown up. And he ended up reneging on that because of some BS controversy uh, that the book had created. I, actually, I even have him on tape. I recorded our conversation where he backed out of writing that forward. And that's not even the real reason why I think he is a con man and a bad person. I, I think that Lou Holtz is a con man. I think he's exactly like Donald Trump. He's actually better at being a con man than Donald Trump is. Uh, but I, I also had uh, you know, a, a very bad experience with Lou Holtz involving the funeral of a very close friend of mine, a very close friend of mine who was a doctor in Ohio who <clears throat> believed that Lou Holtz was one of his best friends and who was a huge Notre Dame booster and uh, Notre Dame graduate. And uh, unfortunately, my friend passed away of a heart attack. And immediately, the, uh, the presumption was that Lou Holtz would come to the funeral and he would give the eulogy. 
And I told everybody, of course, I, I had to be as careful as possible because everyone's in mourning over our friend dying of a heart attack. I told everyone that's not going to happen. Lou Holtz is not going to come and give the eulogy to this uh, to his friend uh, because Lou Holtz doesn't care about someone who's dead. Lou Holtz only cares about someone who can help him. And because he doesn't live directly in the area, it's going to be an inconvenience. This isn't going to happen. And yet the funeral was planned on the basis of Lou Holtz coming to do the eulogy. Well, of course, guess what turns out to happen? I was right, because I always am in these situations. And Lou Holtz did not show up. And all he did was send a, a very cursory letter uh, which I thought was insulting. But what was particularly uh, interesting was that there was another former Notre Dame head coach that did show up, the coach that preceded Lou Holtz, a guy by the name of Jerry Faust, who was deemed to be a terrible coach at Notre Dame. Um, and he was, he was not a good coach, but he was a great guy, very Catholic, uh, tremendous human being, terrible a football coach. I knew Jerry Faust uh, almost as well as I knew Lou Holtz having done a story about him. And uh, to no fanfare, Jerry Faust showed up, stood in the back of the church, uh, went to the post-reception uh, uh, after the funeral, made no uh, fuss about himself. So, so he was there for hours and hours, uh, driving at quite a distance from Cincinnati to the other end of the state to be there. And I thought that was really a great indication about the two men. Uh, Lou Holtz, who gets all the acclaim because he won a national championship and he's a con man, he was on ESPN, and everyone loves him and everyone you know, wants him to give the eulogy. And Jerry Faust, who actually walks the walk, talks the talk, shows up, stays in the back of the church, pays his respects, and uh, gets no credit for it. So I have, no, I have no respect for Lou Holtz. And the idea that Donald Trump is giving the Presidential Medal of Freedom to a con man who uh, had all sorts of scandals in his college career and was just a college football coach, a, uh, a mercenary who went from school to school uh, and happened to get lucky at Notre Dame and won a national championship largely because they dropped the academic standards and they looked the other way on steroids. And I know this because I know his son, Skip Holtz, told me this. <laughs> so, and I actually like Skip Holtz. Uh, but the idea that that's now worthy of the Presidential Medal of Freedom is a joke and, and so classically typical of the Trump presidency. Correct. Now, uh, similarly, with regard to the con man issue, Michael Cohen's book is out and uh, it's getting uh, some play and it is validating a, an issue that I've had uh, with uh, Trump all the way back to 2016. I was screaming and yelling in the 2016 election. How is it that we're not talking about this conflict of interest with the National Enquirer? The National Enquirer is an arm of the Trump campaign, and this is incredibly troubling, not just because of what the National Enquirer is reporting about Trump's opponents in the Republican presidential primary, but also about what it means for when he's president, because now they have, they have leverage over him. The National Enquirer is effectively a journalistic, not even a journalistic, that's bastardizing that word, but it is a, a print terrorist organization. That's what it is. That's the way they, they, they operate. That's their M.O. They intimidate people, and they actually make probably more money from not running stories than they, run, than they do from running them. And so here the President of the United States was going to be not just beholden to, but leveraged by this terrorist organization because they were an arm of his campaign. That was my theory at the time based upon what the National Enquirer was doing in that, especially that primary campaign of 2016. Well, Michael Cohen's book has a thousand percent validated that view. He says that 100 percent 
and he, and he does so in great detail, that 100% Trump knew of and approved the National Enquirer stories targeting Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, his two main opponents in the 2016 Republican primary contest, stories that were total bullshit and that uh, Trump uh, placed effectively or approved their placement in the National Enquirer to try to curtail them, especially at times when they were moving up in the polls. And I believe this story to be true because it makes sense and because of the details that Michael Cohen provides in his book and in the interviews about his book. And I got to tell you, I doubt they will say anything because they're a bunch of wussies. But how in the world do Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, two Republican senators, neither of whom is running for reelection in this cycle, how do they not at least publicly condemn Donald Trump for what he did there? I mean, what a bunch of wussies. I mean, you're going to take that. You're going to take the uh, your president use the National Enquirer to lie about you during a campaign, and you're just going to say thank you, sir. May I have another? Absolutely pathetic. It's just flat out ridiculous. But that's that's who that's what the Republican Party has become now. That's what the Republican Party has become now. Ted Cruz and Mark Rubio. I actually liked Rubio. I I was supporting Rubio in the 2016 uh, Republican primary. And I think we would have been a hell of a lot better off, even if he had lost to Hillary Clinton. Uh, than uh, than Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination. Uh, as far as the campaign itself is concerned, Trump is now claiming there was a story out, which I think is bullshit, that he's going to write a hundred million dollar check to override the fundraising shortfalls that his campaign appears to be suffering from. That's not going to happen. Donald Trump is not going to write a hundred million dollar check to his campaign. One because he, I think he knows he's losing and was very likely to lose. And $100 million is not going to dramatically change anything. I'm not sure he has $100 million in the bank. And in fact, this is a story almost exactly that ran during the 2016 campaign. They, 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 they floated this idea that Trump was going to write a $100 million check in 2016, and he never did that. He's certainly not going to do it now where I think his election prospects are even maybe slightly worse today than they were against Hillary Clinton in 2016, mostly because people already know what his presidency would look like. And there are very, 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 very few undecideds at this point, which is why uh, I am now uh, far less uh, worried about Donald Trump winning this election than I was just last week. Last week, I said that the chances were 30 percent that Trump could win this election. That was based in large part on a presumption, a projection on my part, that there would be a bounce from the Republican convention. Because I thought the Republican convention had created in an image, from an imagery standpoint, a very strong contrast to the Democratic convention as far as what kind of world you want to live in after uh, this election. Do you want to live in a world where it's okay to have a, an event outside without masks and limited social distancing and you get lots of fireworks? Uh, or do you want to live in the Biden world where everyone's masked up and, uh, you know, you do it in a parking lot with a mini fireworks display and, and everyone's pretending that the, the COVID is going to kill you at any moment? Uh, that has not shown to have any impact in the polling. In fact, it's very clear that nothing matters. The, the Harris pick doesn't matter. The Democratic convention doesn't matter. The Republican convention doesn't matter. The contrast in imagery doesn't matter. Nothing matters because there are no undecided voters. That's now becoming exceedingly obvious. And that's also diminishing what potential impact the debates could have because everyone has made up their mind. Now, how have they made up their mind? 
unless you buy the idea that all the polls are wrong except for one polling group, the Trafalgar, Trafalgar, I don't even know how to pronounce it correctly, but Trafalgar is how you how it's spelled. The Trafalgar group, which is way out there on a limb. I mean, unless they're the only ones that are right, Trump is going to lose unless something really dramatic happens. Because every other polling institute has Biden winning, not by tons, not by a large margin, but by small and consistent solid margins in all of the key states, including Florida and Ohio and Arizona. Trump can't even get into the ball game. He can't even get admission into the contest unless he wins Florida, Ohio, and probably Arizona. But clearly Florida and Ohio. Florida and Ohio almost always go together. And so, you know, I think it's still possible he could win Florida and Ohio, but he's, he has to make a comeback in those two states just to have a legitimate shot. Then he's got to win, you know, someplace else where he's currently an underdog. And so, you know, he has a pulse. There, there's still a chance for Trump. I would still be worried if I were Democrats. I would not be taking this for granted. Of course, they always overplay their hand, and they'll, I'm sure they will continue to do so. But based upon where I see things now, the omission, the, the lack of any sort of a bounce from the Republican convention, to me, is very ominous for Trump. And so I'm going to dramatically shift the chances of Trump's reelection from 30 percent to 15 percent. And some of it's because of all these books that are coming out. They have some minuscule impact as as the bombardment against Trump continues. Um, of course, that might be offset by the fact that the virus is fading. It's not getting any publicity, but it is continuing to fade. And I think will continue to fade up into and through the election. It might not be fading fast enough to have a major impact for Trump. Uh, but I think those two things will probably balance each other out. So I'm going to go from 15 percent down to I'm sorry, 30 percent down to 15 percent. I think that there is now a, only a 15 percent chance that Donald Trump can pull this off. He has a pulse. But he needs absolutely everything to go perfectly. He needs the polling to be slightly off. He needs to do very well in the debates. He needs the virus to continue to fade. He needs football to go well in the in the areas where it's being played. He needs schools to open well, although the schools are making sure that doesn't happen because they're closing down based upon a few cases, which is just ridiculous since there's no hospitalizations involved in any of that, especially in colleges. My God, one of the dumbest things we're doing is we're closing colleges because kids who are perfectly young and healthy and not being hospitalized are getting this together living together, which is like the perfect scenario. I mean, we should be cheering this. Yay! Instead, we're closing colleges down because we're just so freaking stupid. It's just flat out ridiculous. The whole, the whole world has lost their damn minds. And uh, we try to, to provide some semblance of rationality here on the Individual One podcast. So officially, we're shifting the chances of Trump's re-election from 30% to 15%. Again, please no wagering and keep your social distance. Until next week, uh, that'll do it for this edition of the podcast. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual the number one pod. That's at individual the number one pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.